death to selfie. The last three weeks, Pastor Troy has done a great job just laying out uh, death to rebellion, death to self, uh, death to self-righteousness. And what a great journey it's been. And I know this has been speaking uh, to all of us about how ourselves so, in so many ways, get in the way, with our, in the way to our relationship to God. And today we're talking about self-promotion. Uh, I was thinking about a statement as Troy and I have been talking, I believe he's mentioned it here, is that to ask yourself this question, who is getting the highlights in your life? Who is getting the highlights? It's interesting, uh, uh, I'm a Cubs fan and, and that's a very difficult long journey of being a Cubs fan is, is that uh, my wife was wanting me to watch the game. Last night. I said, I don't think I want to put myself through it. And so uh, and I, I thought, you know, if they win, I'll watch the highlights. And uh, of course they didn't. So I, I didn't watch anything last night. But when we think about highlights, what are, who gets the highlights in your life? Who is that that's getting the highlights? Is it you or is it God? And I want to talk about that a little bit because it really depends on who you're promoting, who you're promoting. We live in this culture that says, promote yourself, promote yourself. We have social media where you can promote all the great things about your life for people to see. Look at how awesome, you know, my life is. Look at how great things are going in my job. Look at what's happening here. Look at me. Look at everything that's happening. Look what I'm doing. And that's the culture that we live in. So it's so tempting for that to be who we are. That we gravitate towards this idea. It reminds me of this, uh, this 1980s song, which is, Don't You Forget About Me. Anybody know that song? Okay. Don't You Forget About Me. And how much our culture has got wrapped up into that idea don't forget about me. And what Jesus, though, has to say about what it means to follow him is exactly the opposite of don't forget about me. He gives us an invitation. I want to take a look at this invitation in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. Jesus said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? You know, when I read that phrase, turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily and follow me. When I read that phrase, I have to consider that word, the cross. The cross. When we read that, when we hear the cross, yes, we think about Jesus dying on the cross, but we also have these symbols and these images in our mind. Maybe it's a cross that hung in your home. Maybe it's a cross that you're wearing around your neck. That symbol, right now, in our day and age, we have our own images. But for the original uh, listeners to Jesus saying this, when they heard, take up your cross, they had a horrific image that began to play out in their mind. 
of something they had seen. Now, they hadn't seen Jesus die on the cross, nor did they know that's what he was going to do. But because they were living in the Roman Empire, they knew what Romans did during a crucifixion. What they did with a prisoner was uh, they would ask that prisoner, they would actually force this prisoner to take this long horizontal beam of the pentabellum, and it is this long beam that they would carry. They would carry through the streets to the place where they would be crucified. This beam was usually 80 to 100 pounds. Maybe at that time they had already endured some type of punishment. As they were carrying this and dragging it to where they would be crucified, mobs would gather around and throw things, jeering at them. This was the image that they had in their mind. In essence, when someone was crucified, they carried their own death instrument to where they were executed. That's what the scene was in their mind. When they heard, take up your cross and follow me. See, Jesus anticipated this for himself and also for many of his followers who were also martyred. Those who were first listening, they were killed for following Jesus, for believing in him. And although his disciples didn't understand this, yet what Jesus wanted them and what he wants us to understand is this. To follow Jesus means that we forfeit our life. Our life is forfeit. To say yes to Jesus, to say I will follow you. That's what he is saying to us. Now what does this mean? Well, the first thing is this. You can follow along in your handout. There's some notes there. Christ died on the cross for us, and he invites us to die to ourself for him. That's what he was talking about here. You know, there's this idea in Christianity that for too long has had way too much traction. This idea that Jesus died for my sins, and if I say yes to Jesus, if I say yes, I will follow you. Jesus, save me from my sins. Now I can live the life I've always wanted, and I'm free from my sins. I can live my life. And oh, by the way, God, I'll give you Sunday mornings. That's this idea that surrounds Christianity, especially in America. But that's not at all what Jesus had in mind. You see, even, even here at Southridge, we talk about live life full. And if we don't unpack that a little bit and rem- remember that it's a life full of significance that starts with a life of surrender. That's the invitation to us. You see, before you can live life full, you must fully surrender your life. That's the invitation of Jesus in this key text that we're looking at. The full life that Jesus speaks of and that we talk about here is not a full life for you. It is a full life living for Him. You know, as I was praying about this at our Saturday morning prayer, every Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m., we gather to pray. You can be a part of this. It's nothing spooky or anything. What happens is someone shares a devotion for about 10 minutes, and then we pray. We pray for 
the moments that are experienced here and in, in our uh, Kids Connect, that God would do something great. And as I was praying, you know, God really just kind of nudged me just about this, this idea of the cross. And you see this image that they had in their mind of someone carrying their cross to their death. Many times, people would be watching that and would look away. Just as when Jesus was being tortured and when Jesus died on the cross, the horrific death and suffering that he experienced, they would have to look away. And I just wonder, for some of you, maybe you know someone who has fully died to themselves. You see their life. Maybe it's here, here at Southridge. They fully surrendered their life to God. And what a change that's happened. But you see the sacrifice, you see the surrender, and you want to look away or keep your distance, saying, you know, I'm not sure I can go that far. I'm not sure I can do that. But the invitation remains. Jesus gave himself for you. Will you give all of yourself for him? You know, even with this, this strong, uh, this, these strong statements and images that Jesus gave his disciples, his first followers, his disciples struggled even with this idea of die to yourself. We see this in, a, in something that happened, and it's in your further reading. If you look at your notes at the bottom, there's some different passages there. In Mark chapter 10, there's an account of how when the disciples were gathered together, Two of the disciples, James and John, who were especially close to Jesus, actually came to Jesus, and in one account it says they came with their mother, with their mom coming along and said, hey, would it be okay if when we're in heaven together, at the end of this life, could we sit on your right and your left? Could we be your favorites in heaven? Could we come to the front of the line? Of course, the other disciples, not so happy about that request, okay? Not so happy about that. But here they are, forgetting you must die to yourself, saying, I want to get to the front of the line. I want to be the closest to Jesus. I, when I was looking at that passage, I had to think about uh, my six-year-old daughter. She's in kindergarten, and uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, she came home with what is called a talk sheet from the teacher, which is kind of the, one of those first steps of, of behavior correction. And so, uh, and I said, what are we talking about today? And we're talking about uh, uh, not putting our hands on other people and keeping our hands to ourselves, that kind of thing. And, and I said, well, what happened? And, and I don't know if it was my wife or, or my daughter who, who said, well... Haven was in line, and someone pushed her out of line. I said, well, I think I know what happens next, right? And my daughter said, I'm not going to have any of that, and pushed right back, right? She wanted to be in that place in line. And, uh, I, I, you know, I found out that it was a boy, though, and I was like, well, I think it's okay if she pushed the boy, because he shouldn't even have her ha- his hands on her. I told her, I told her yesterday, I said, remember, Haven, you're not dating until 21. And she said, okay. So 
she said okay. So, you know, so, um, but you know, when we think about kids and we see those images of kids jostling to get to the front of the line, we always say, no, come on, kids. It doesn't matter which place you're in line. Everybody's going to get their turn, right? But for us as adults, in our life, we want to push to the front of the line. We want people to see us. We want to promote ourselves. We want to get to be favorite at work. We want people to see us in our family. We do the same thing. Pushing to the front of the line, saying, me first. Saying, don't forget about me. I want to take a look at a kind of a case study in self-promotion, kind of what we're talking about, this idea of what we need to die to, this self-promotion. And it's a man named Jacob. Uh, Jacob and uh, Jacob was one of two boys who were twins, Jacob and Esau, born to Isaac. Isaac was the son of Abraham, all right? This is all played out in the book of Genesis. We're going to read about their birth and kind of the first real story about their lives and this life of self-promotion. We'll start with Genesis 25 verses 23 through 24 through uh, 34, but we're going to break it up into a couple pieces and I'll share some observations. Okay, so Rebecca praying to God, asking why are the two kids, the twins, struggling so much in her womb? And this is the answer. And the Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other. And the older son will serve your younger son. And when the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. So they named him Esau. Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping at Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. How would you like to have twins when you're 60? Huh? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, amazing, amazing stuff here. But I want to just unpack just one little thing in this verse. And that is this little phrase. It says that they named him, it says the other twin was born with his hand grasping at Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob. The name Jacob comes from this Hebrew uh, word, Jacob, all right? And this, this Hebrew word also sounds like the words heel and overtake, all right? So his name became a nickname of sorts, Jacob the heel grabber. And before giving Jacob his name, God had given Rebecca, we see this glimpse of his, of this plan, the plan that Jacob would actually have the blessing and the birthright of his older brother, which the older kid would, would be the one that would get that. But it, it was even more than that. As we see in scripture and his life, as it plays out, Jacob has 12 sons, and those 12 sons actually become the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob actually having his name later changed 
to Israel. There's this huge redemptive plan for Jacob's life. We're just getting a glimpse of it. But I want to just help you to understand, I have to sum up some of his life because we can't go through the whole scripture. Here's the deal. Even with this big life, this big plan that God had for him that was more about others. It was more about a whole country. It was a whole nation, God's people, that God wanted to do through Jacob. With this big plan, Jacob spent half his life grasping, trying to get, trying to promote himself, promote himself and get to the front of the line before Esau. Even though, even though God had preordained and had a plan for his life. There's a couple observations with this. As Jacob was the master of self-promotion for us, what does it mean for us? What do we need to consider? First is this, God's plan for your life is bigger than you, but has no room for me. God has a redemptive plan for your life. He wants you to influence others. It is bigger than you but it has no room for the self, for me. We have to understand this, and it is such a leap in our spiritual growth to have this understanding that the plan that he has for you is so much bigger than you getting stuff, getting a job, having a house, living the American dream. It is bigger than that. That you would influence lives for the sake of, of his son, Jesus Christ. He wants to do that in you and bigger than you know. But for that to happen, you have to come to this realization. It's not about me. In fact, I have to die to myself. He has no need for you to be opportunistic, grasping for his plans to make them happen. He needs you to forget about me and to be all about him. As we read here, Jacob was not just grasping at any heel, he was grasping at Esau's heel, his older brother. And as he did so, it proved to be prophetic because his life, big, two big stories, we're going to read one of them, was what he did to steal and take from his brother. And the result of that was that his older brother decided I'm going to kill my younger brother. I'm going to chase him down and kill him. That was his mission. And so that landed Jacob in seclusion, running from his brother, away from his family. That was the consequences. That was his destination, running. He found himself running. And with that, this observation is important. Your destination is determined by who and what you pursue. Jacob, as he did was with his very first breaths of life, pursued the privileges that his brother possessed. That caused him to spend his life on the run, a, a part of his life on the run. Let me ask you something. Where do you find yourself now? Do you find yourself in great distress? Do you find yourself lonely? Do you find yourself in this place of constant frustration, 
Maybe, just maybe, that's because who and what you are pursuing has nothing to do with the God who has a bigger plan that he wants to unveil for your life. It's very, very possible. A plan for your life is bigger than you, but has no room for me, for myself. As we continue to read in verse 27, it says, As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. But Rebekah loved Jacob. I've been telling people in the office, it needs to get colder and colder because in a couple of weeks I'm going hunting, deer hunting. It has to get colder and colder. I can't wait for, for that experience. I'm excited about that. But you know, as I read this, as I read this, it says, Isaac loved Esau because. That word because is really significant. It doesn't say Isaac loved Esau. Isaac loved Esau because he brought home great venison. He brought home great, big, awesome deer bucks and and elks and whatever else. He was this great hunter. So Isaac loved him because of that. We have to take a closer look about this because... Not only do we read and we see there's favoritism in this home, but also Isaac is promoting performance. That's what he's promoting in his home with his two sons. Perform. I will love you as you do this because you do this. We have to be careful what we promote in our home. What are you promoting in your home, in your relationships, in your marriage? Are you promoting performance? It's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing because here, what you promote in your home and in your relationships will be reproduced. You see, Jacob had 12 sons. And if you read that story, if you continue to read in the book of Genesis, you'll find that one of his sons was named Joseph. And Joseph, he favored over all the others. And that landed Joseph in a well because all their other brothers, or almost all his brothers, wanted to kill him. What you are promoting in your home with your kids, with your spouse, and your relationships will be reproduced. Do you want that to be reproduced? Another thought here that's really important is Isaac was missing something very important about the love of God. And his character. And that's what we want to produce and, and promote in our home. In your relationships, parents with your kids. That you would promote the true love of God and his character. You see, God loves you, period. There is nothing that you can promote about yourself or perform about yourself that will make God love you anymore. Or less. He loves you. Period. 
And if at a time in your life, whether it was growing up or in another relationship, that you got the idea in your mind or in your heart, I have to perform. I have to do a certain thing for God to love me or for somebody else in my life to love me. Listen, God loves you because. For my kids, I I have this thing that I say to them after I pray with them at night. I say, Jackson, you're my son and I love you. You're a great kid and I'm proud of you. There is no because at the end of that. My son, he's a very young age, very sharp. And at three years old, after about six months of me saying that almost every night, as I was leaving the room, he said, Dad, you're my dad and I love you. You're a great dad and I'm proud of you. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah. My daughter just did that too this last week. Before she had been arguing with me, she would, she would want me to stay in the room a little bit longer. She's one that, how many of you had kids that try to keep you in the room as long as possible? At, yeah, right? It's a hostage negotiation. That's what I call it. And she would just, she, she would just argue. She's like, no, I'm not a good kid. I'm not a good kid. And then I'm like, okay, listen, you are a great kid. I love you. And then I'm like, she sprung the tra- trap and she's got me here. So, but, you know, she, she embraced that this last week too. So it was really cool. But I want them to get that idea and we all need to get that idea. God loves you, period. Not because of anything that you do or don't do. That's why he sent his son who gave himself for you and ask us to do the same, to give our lives for him. You know, one day, we're going to continue with this scripture. One day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness, exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, first you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal and got up and left. And he showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn son. I read this, and it's one of those, those stories I read, and I, I, there's so many different reasons why I know the Bible is true. This one is, is right, right up there with it, because I, you can't make this stuff up, right? Amazing stuff. Um, now, just a couple things about the birthright, because as you're reading that, you may think, what is a birthright? What is this about? Because it's not really in our, necessarily in our culture anymore. A birthright is, is the inheritance, and it was divided into a number of sons, the number of sons plus one. Plus one, because the eldest received a double share. So Jacob, so the inheritance of Isaac was divided into three, and Esau was supposed to get two. Well, Jacob decided, I like the two for me. And in fact, if you, if you think about this just a little bit, and I don't think it's a stretch to say his mom, it says the scriptures say, Rebecca loved Jacob. 
a little bit of favoritism going on that side. Well, so what probably happened was Rebecca at one point said, you know, God spoke to me before you were born. And you know what he said? You're going to get what Esau is supposed to get. And so Jacob thought, how am I going to make this happen? How am I going to scheme and make this happen? How am I going to promote myself? How am I going to get to the front of the line? And that's what we have here. Jacob furthered himself by grabbing this birthright, but in the process, here's what happened. He lost the blessing of God giving it to him. God threw a message to Rebekah and made it clear these plans, God had ordained it, that the oldest would serve the youngest. That was the word from heaven. The blessing was going to come, but Jacob said, yeah, you know what? It'd be better if I just go take it. I'm not going to wait on God. How often do we do that? How often do we do this? Here's a thought. When we grab what we want in life, we miss the blessing of God giving it to us. When I wrote this down and was thinking about it, I thought, how do you know the difference? How do you know the difference between what we have went out and grabbed and got for ourselves and promoted ourselves and what God has given us? And immediately I thought, you totally know how it feels. You know the feeling of a blessing from God. Something that's like, man, I totally didn't deserve this. This is so amazing. This blessing, whether it's provision, whether it's with our family, you're like, wow, God has so blessed me. The other way, it's like, wow, I finally got what I wanted to get and it doesn't quite feel like I thought it would. I shared this in the first service and somebody stopped me and said, right before you said what you said, I thought, how do I know the difference? And then I thought, I feel it. We know how it feels. Faith, this is a quote that I read. Um, Faith is a life without scheming. It's a trust thing. Do you trust God enough that, to know that he has great plans in store for you? And I don't have to scheme or do anything to go get those things. I just got to walk with him and give more of my life, surrendering more to him to trust that he will bless me in the right time. That's what he's asking us to do, to put aside ourselves so that he can give what he has planned for us. Are you willing to trust God enough to allow him to be the source of your blessings? Because when you do, guess who gets the highlights? He does. If you've been in that place where you had this tremendous blessing come along and you knew it was from God, what did you go tell someone? God bless me. Look what God has done in my life, in my kids, in my family, in my relationship with my spouse. Look what he has done. Guess who's getting a highlight? So important for us in this trust walk. Now, before we wrap this story up, I have to address Esau's foolish decision to take his birthright and trade it away for a bowl of stew. I can't believe that stew was worth it. And we know it wasn't because he said he held his birthright in contempt. He despised it. What we know about Esau, though, is that he 
was not very concerned about spiritual things. He was a lot about himself, about being an outdoorsman, about enjoying life. And that meant his appetite was not a spiritual appetite. It was an appetite that was selfish. The thought that goes along with this is a selfish appetite will often lead us to choose immediate pleasure over lasting blessings. When we lose contact with God and his plan for our life, our selfish appetites take over and it leads to impulsive and regretful decisions. How many of you can nod and say, yep, I've been there? Mm-hmm. And I'm not just talking about the post on, self, on Facebook that you're like, I need to delete that, right? I think about early in ministry, I was trying to counsel a couple who... Uh, um, they were on the brink of divorce, and it was caused by uh, unfaithfulness. It was actually what you would call, the be- it was the beginnings of an emotional affair by one person. And that, uh, that person had gotten really close, really close with someone other than their spouse. And so I was counseling them, and it was going nowhere because there was not recognition of, really, what I'm doing is not right. And so as this, this person was, uh, uh, was leaving that had, had started this affair, leaving my house, I remember, uh, just, just have this distinct memory, standing in my foyer, explaining again why they were doing, what they were doing was okay. And I remember they looked, in me, looked me in the eyes and said, you know, Jay, I deserve this. I deserve a chance at at true love or whatever. I don't know what the rest was, but but I deserve this. My first thought was, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard anybody ever say. I didn't say that. That was just in my head. My other thought was, do those two kids deserve it? It's amazing what we will say and what we will do when our appetite, our hunger, is just about us. When it's not about God, and it's not about the spiritual things, it's not about our relationship with God, but when it's just about us, trust me, you'll find yourself making impulsive decisions that you will regret. We have to have that appetite. We have to check our hunger pains. Is this about me, or is this about God and his plan for my life? He wants us to trust in him. He wants us to have an appetite, hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's what Jesus said. You know, when we look at this story of Jacob and Esau, especially with Jacob, we read it and we say, wow, this guy, what a piece of work, right? What a piece of work. But then when we think just a little bit more, about what he was doing, getting to the front of the line. Don't you forget about me. We realize this. There's a Jacob in all of us. There's a Jacob in all of us. So how do we move away from the life of self-promotion to a life of denying ourselves? How can we do that? And I really think the answer lies in this other key text that 
that Troy's been talking about the last three weeks, and it's actually my life verse, Galatians 2.20. And I remember in, in uh, the spring of 1997, I made a decision in a Ford F-150 pickup, driving down the highway by myself, I'm going to live for God. God, you can have it all. I remember saying, God, I'm ready to do it your way. That was my prayer. I'm ready to do it your way. I knew who God was. I knew the work of Jesus on the cross, but I hadn't surrendered my life. I remember about six months later, and I was uh, uh, at Missouri State University, and I was uh, in my uh, dorm room studying, and um, I had been in this process of just, I remember reading the book of Galatians. It was like one of the first books that I just kind of read through. And I landed on 220, and I remember I had to read it over and over, not just in one setting, but I kept coming back to it. And I believe it's because for so long, especially uh, from the ages of about 18 to 22, I had this period in my life where I was looking for ways to better myself, to promote myself, to, to, to find out my plan for my life. And then I finally came to this realization it's not my life. I finally came to this place where I wasn't going to be like, hey, it's the new and improved Jay. Look at me. Because I had done that many times. I finally realized it's not about needing a new and improved Jay. I needed to forget about Jay altogether. And so how can we forget about me. Because this is a process. It wasn't just a process in 1997. It's a process in 2016 for all of us. Forget about me. We look at three lines in this scripture. Let's look at it. In Galatians 2.20, it says, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives within me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's two different translations I just gave you because I memorized it in the other translation and we've been reading the New Living Translation. Okay? So that's what's happening there, right? Forget about me. How can we do this? Three things out of this scripture. The first is, it is no longer I who live. It is no longer I who live. Leave behind the old you. When you come to a decision... To make Christ the Lord of your life. To say, Jesus, I will follow you for the rest of my days. I accept you as my Savior. When you do that, you now have two stories in your life. You have a before Christ and you have an after Christ. Before Christ, this was my life. I was miserable, I was lonely, I was frustrated. I tried to do everything on my own. And I can tell you all about it and how miserable I really was. But after Jesus came into my heart, this is what happened. Here's the deal. You have to first, and maybe you're here today and you haven't made that decision, you're going to have an opportunity in a moment. You have to first make that decision to say, there's going to be an old me. I want to follow Jesus for the rest of my days. But maybe you're here today and you've made that decision, but you kind of held on to something. You said, my old life, there's one piece that I kind of like to bring along with me. And Jesus is still inviting you. Will you die to yourself totally? Will you surrender it all? 
You have to leave behind the old you. The second thing is ask Christ to come alive in you. It says, but Christ lives in me. When you fully surrender your life, fully surrender your life, you will notice the difference. It's like you come from this place of, I'm trying to, by my own power, my own strength, trying to get enough energy and will to keep moving through the day. I got to get a couple more Red Bulls to make it, right? Okay? A couple more energy drinks. I got to figure out ways to do this. And then after Christ, after you ask Christ, will you live in me? It's like this supernatural force because that's exactly what's in it. The Holy Spirit living in you. That's what happens. The last thing is this. To decide to give all of yourself to him. That last line of Galatians 2.20 says, And gave himself for me. Jesus gave himself for me. For me. That word for is such an important word for all of us. What do you live for? Some of you know that I'm um, very interested in and spend a lot of time building my family tree, uh, genealogy. I love doing it. And the reason is, is because I find these stories of my grandfather and great-grandfather and great-great-grandmother. And man, this is my story too. And the legacy, I'm part of this. I want to show you a picture, and this is a picture of William Jasper Boyd, my great-great-great-grandfather. He's the man right there sitting in, in front with that spectacular mustache, right? Only, man, I could only dream to have a mustache like that. Uh, but William Jasper Boyd, okay? Everyone but one person there, I believe, well, his wife is on his left, and then he has a son-in-law. The rest are his kids, had 12 kids had uh, 12 kids, and in, in his obituary, I want to just read it because there's a line in it that has inspired me and impacted me and has a lot to do with this idea of four. William Jasper Boyd, son of David and Catherine Boyd, was born near Selmore, Missouri, March 25th, 1857, departed this life at Walnut Shade, Walnut Shade Missouri, September 12th, 1939, at the age of 82 years. At the age of 22, he was saved and began to preach and continued in the ministry as long as his health permitted. Talks about his marriage, talked about his kids, 12 kids, also survived by 75 grandchildren. In the Bible it says, be fruitful and multiply. He got that verse, all right? And so did his kids, all right? 12 kids, 75 grandchildren, 20 great-grandchildren, and a host of relatives and friends. But this line is the one that I've read over and over. Because I want it to be a lot like what my life would be. It says, He was a living testimony for God, whom He loved and served faithfully into death. His life was for God. Who is your life for? Who is your life for? How will you be remembered? Will it be a life that says, 
He got all this stuff and he did all this in his career. And he went and he grabbed this and he got this and look at all the stuff and the things that he accomplished or would it be? Man, did he give glory to God with every breath. That's the challenge. Who are you living for? As I pray in just a moment, if you're here today and you need to make a decision for the first time or first time in a long time to change to change what and who you're living for. You can do that. It's time to make a decision. Will you, will you accept the invitation Jesus gave himself for you? Now will you give yourself for him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you gave your life for us. You laid down your life. And now you ask us to take up our cross, to surrender all to you, to stop the madness of going out and grabbing and getting, getting for us what we want. It's time to change and say, Lord, I want to live for you and trust you and your plan that is much bigger than me. If you're here today and you're saying, Jay, I'm ready to make a decision to live for him from this moment forward. I'm ready. It's a simple yet significant step in prayer that says this, Jesus, I believe you're the son of God, that you died for my sins. I am a sinner. Please forgive me. You rose from the dead. And you have called me to a life that is bigger than me. I'm tired of living for myself. I'm ready to follow you. If that's you and you have agreed with that prayer, pray that prayer with me right now in this moment. Own this decision and lift up your hand and say, I am going to follow Jesus. Yes, yes, yes. If you're here today and you're saying, I've gotten caught up in the self-promotion. I've gotten caught up in this idea that I have to go after and grab everything that, that I think I want or my own plans. And I'm ready to start trusting God for him to give me the blessings and to do a work through me that's bigger than me. I need to trust him at a whole nother level. If that's you, just say, I'm ready to trust him more. I need the strength of God. Yes, 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 yes. Lord, give us the strength to trust you at a whole nother level. And we would trust you to live a life that is for you. In Jesus' name, amen.